Well, good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to watching Spike TV or Oxygen. I'm uh, Eric Metaxas, your host for the evening, and I'm thrilled to see so many people here. In case anybody comes in late, there are seats just around the edges now, I guess, but it is a thrill to see such a large group here tonight. I know that um, there are millions and even billions of people who chose not to be here uh, tonight, and they are in fact not here tonight. But um, listen, I'm an optimist, and I, I choose to see the glass half full, or a billionth full, or whatever it is that works out. But um, anyway, tonight we will hear from Sir John Polkinghorne, KBE, FRS, Notorious B.I.G., um, and I'll tell you more about him and his train uh, of initials in a moment. Uh, but for those of you who are new to Socrates, uh, let me say a bit about who we are. Uh, first of all, no matter what you hear, we are not uh, a UFO cult. Um, actually, that's not true. We are uh, a UFO cult, and, and very much so. Um, but I should say that we're a UFO cult in the most positive uh, sense of that term, which is to say only a few of us uh, believe that the mothership uh, is hiding behind the moon, waiting for the signal to come on down and, and take us home. Um, anyway, uh, there are just a few of those kind of hardcore UFO freaks uh, here, and you know who they are because they're the ones who wear the purple jumpsuits, you know, in their minds, you know. Um, I just had to get that off my chest, thank you. But seriously, about Socrates in the City. Socrates in the City takes its name um, from Socrates, who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think he was onto something there. A number of my friends thought he was onto something there, and we decided it wouldn't be a bad idea to create a forum where we might examine our lives a bit. So we decided to invite brilliant thinkers like Sir John Polkinghorne and ask them to talk about the big questions, what we call life, God, and other small topics. And here we are. Over the last uh, four years or so, we've had a dizzying array of speakers. Um, I don't mean literally dizzying, but you know, you get the idea. Among our speakers have been folks like Boston College's Peter Kraft, who spoke on the subject, Making Sense Out of Suffering. It's rather a big question for most of us who think. Uh, we've heard from Dr. Armand Nikolai, uh, who teaches at Harvard, uh, and compared the worldviews of Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. And you may have recently seen the PBS two-part series with him titled The Question of God just uh, about a month ago. Uh, we've also heard from Dr. Oz Guinness a number of times on a number of topics, one of which was how the three different um, faith systems deal with the concept of evil. That was an amazing evening. Uh, one of our most memorable nights uh, was some months ago with Dr. Paul Vitz, who is a professor of psychology at NYU, when he spoke on the subject, The Importance of Fatherhood. Uh, that was absolutely fantastic. Dr. Uh, Vitz is with us tonight, and we welcome him. Where is he? There he is. You've got to raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Seriously, thanks for being here. Uh, you realize that there's no uh, honorarium this time, right? I'm sorry about that, but you actually, you actually have to be the speaker, you know. Um, you can't just hear the speaker, all right? So I'm sorry, all right? Um, and again, uh, with us tonight is one of my favorite people on the planet, Mr. Dick Cavett. Uh, yes. right. 
Earlier tonight, he was uh, confused with uh, Merv Griffin and Oprah Winfrey. People do that all the time. It's, uh, uh, by the way, Dick, there's no uh, honorarium for you either. Sorry. It's, uh, yeah. You know, you can't just show up here at Big Jesus and expect checks. You actually have to be the speaker to get, to get a check. And actually wearing a tie would help. Um, <laughs> terrible. I'm so embarrassed. Um, don't leave. Um, anyway, our format at Socrates in the City is always the same. Our speaker speaks for about 40 minutes. Then we have about 40 minutes of Q&A. After that, everyone madly rushes over to the book table and buys books by our previous speakers and present speaker and audio CDs of our previous events, which are available at the ridiculously low price of $5. And they actually work, right? So I I have to say I do appreciate the incredible enthusiasm over the books and audio CDs at the end of of, uh, what we do here. But this time, folks, please, for me, no shoving this time. Look, I'm not personally against shoving. I do it all the time, but we have to abide by the rules of the club, and they're archaic, but we have to abide by them. Otherwise, we can't come back. Um, so tonight, we have the honor and great privilege of hearing from none other than the rather extraordinary Sir John Polkinghorn. Sir John was one of the leading physicists uh, of the 20th century and a member of the Royal Society and was president of Queen's College, Cambridge. He's also a canon theologian of Liverpool, England, which is in England. Um, <laughs> And, of course, he is the author of many books that deal with the relationship between faith and science, a number of which we have available at our book table. And, again, let me say no shoving. Also, no rabbit punches and no gouging, because I know that Dr. Polkenhorn strongly frowns upon gouging, as do most top scientists. Um, (laughs) Sir Polkenhorn is, of course, among other things, a knight of the British Empire. Now, we have had a knight of the British Empire at Socrates in the city once before, but it turns out uh, that he was also named Sir John Polkinghorn, um, which makes me think it was probably the same guy, just being realistic about it. Um, are you getting this on tape there, Kurt? Um, so as I've said, at Socrates, we talk about the big and controversial issues of human life, or specifically about the question and nature of God, the problems of evil and suffering, the question of human nature and the purpose of human life. And fifthly, we try to address the question of faith and science, as we will do this evening. Uh, As most of you, most of us know, faith and science have quite erroneously been considered polar opposites for the better part of about three centuries now, which is a tragedy, I think, unless it's true. Um, I guess you could say that for three centuries we've had kind of a blue state, red state dichotomy going on with uh, science taking the role of the rational, windsurfing and Chardonnay-sipping blue state, (laughs) and faith taking the role of the irrational, gun-toting, tobacco-chawing red state. (laughs) Science, uh, you know, drives a Volvo and listens to NPR. Faith shoots critters from the back of a pickup. Uh, that's just the way it's been. Uh, Faith, Faith, for example, has a drawl and wears denim, probably swaggers. And uh, science has an indeterminate European accent and wears Hermes. So uh, that's about as far as I'm going to push this. But I think you understand what we're talking about here. Um, this division, it seems to me, has been unhealthy. Uh, It's been a kind of civil war, certainly a culture war. 
but to paraphrase Lincoln incorrectly, a culture divided itself, a culture divided against itself cannot stand. So tonight, with malice toward none, So there are five literate people here. That's so, that's encouraging, you see. Um, with malice toward none, we at Socrates in the city mean to begin the process of bringing together this divided culture. To that end, let me at long last introduce our guest speaker for tonight, the fabulous Sir John Polkinghorn. Oh dear, follow that. Well, there we are. Well, counter-scientists pray. Well, I suppose it depends upon what you mean by pray, as Socrates might have said. We know there are all sorts of different ways of praying. Uh, there's prayers, there's thanksgiving, there's a still meditative waiting upon God. And, of course, there's petitionary prayer. And that's the, it's the, that last one, which is really going to be the one I'm going to be concerned with this evening. But I think if we think about the other forms of praying, a lot of scientists do pray unconsciously, unaware that they're doing so. Um, if you work in fundamental physics, you're very struck by the rational beauty of the world, the deep order that there is in the universe. And a word that scientists use very frequently in their um, conversation, they don't use it when they write papers for the physical review, but in their ordinary conversation, they use the word wonder. It's the payoff for the weary labor of doing scientific research, that you see the beautiful structure and order of the world, and it induces uh, a sense of wonder. And whether they know it or not, I think that sense of wonder is actually um, a prayer of, of praise and thankfulness to the God whose mind and purpose lie behind the order and fruitfulness of the world. But that's not what we're going to talk about this evening. We're going to talk this evening about petitionary prayer. And... Can we really pray asking God to do something in the expectation that God might, might actually respond to that and do, do something, given all that science tells us about the regularity and process of the world? I think there's no doubt that the advance of science and the success of science has considerably reduced people's expectations of God's providential interaction with history. Uh, I'm an Anglican priest, and the Book of Common Prayer of 1662, which is the uh, sort of foundational liturgy for the Church of England, <clears throat> that prayer book contains a, a prayer for seasonable weather to enable the crops. When the prayer book was <coughs> revised, <coughs> excuse me, when the prayer book was revised in, in, um, in 1980, that prayer was retained uh, in a uh, sort of modified form. But our contemporary literature, the Book of Common Worship, contains no such prayer. The nearest you get to it is a sort of retrospective harvest collect, being thankful for the fruits of the earth. But why you should be thankful afterwards, what you didn't have the nerve to ask for beforehand, is not entirely clear. <clears throat> so the question is, can a scientist pray? Can somebody take absolutely seriously, as I certainly want to do, all that science can reliably tell us about the process of the world and still believe that God acts in the world and can respond to prayer. Now, if the universe were a clockwork universe, and for about 200 years following Newton, that's what people thought science was saying about the world. If the world were simply a clockwork universe, then I don't think you could expect God to do very much. You'd have to hope that the divine clockmaker 
had set up the, the, the clock and wound it up in an appropriate way and things wouldn't work out too badly, but it would just tick away in that sort of way. If the universe is simply clockwork, if it's merely mechanical, then it seems to me that uh, prayer in the petitionary sense is, 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 is not a, a viable option. But the most important scientific thing I want to say to you this evening is that 20th century science has seen the death, the death of that merely mechanical view of the world. That death came about in two ways. One, of course, was in the 1920s with the discovery of quantum theory when we found that at the, at the atomic and subatomic level, the world is cloudy and fitful. It doesn't behave in a reliable way. We have to describe it not deterministically, but probabilistically. We can say this may happen with a certain probability, that may happen with a certain probability, but we don't know which it's going to be. That in itself is, of course, very interesting, and I myself worked as a, as a quantum physicist for about uh, two, 25 years. But I don't think that's the most significant discovery, because though these atomic processes are uh, fitful and cloudy in that sort of way, Anything of which we are directly aware, anything that really affects us in our everyday lives, is going to involve a very, very large number of uh, those quantum processes. And the different fluctuations, the different uncertainties, the probabilistic character of each of those individual quantum events tends to sort of wash out and, and smooth out when you add them all together. <clears throat> it's a bit like uh, life insurance. The actuaries don't know when you're going to die, but they know what the probability of people of your sort of cohort, your sort of age, of dying in the next five years. And they know that sufficiently accurately to be able to make money out of it. And that's quite an interesting test of, of, of accuracy. They know that because the fluctuations, some people die sooner, some people die later. But if you have, insure enough people, for sure, you'll be able to make money out of the operation. But it was a very considerable surprise uh, in the 1960s to learn that there is a second aspect of the process of the world, which again is not predictable, is not straightforward or predictable in its character, and that this is something that operates not at the subatomic roots of the world, but at the level of everyday process. This was the discovery of chaos theory. I'm sure you all know about that. Um, instead of the world consisting of a, a large collection of clocks, it turned out that there are many, many clouds in the world, as well as clocks. And by clouds, I mean systems that are so exquisitely sensitive to the slightest disturbance of, 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 of their state that their total future behavior will be radically changed by that sort of disturbance in that, in that way. Um, I, I'm sure you know uh, a bit about it. You know that... that, that, that uh, the initial, initial discovery, in some sense it was a rediscovery, but the initial discovery came from the work of Ed Lorenz, who was studying a highly simplified model, actually, of the, worth, of the Earth's weather systems. And he found that when he took those equations and he slightly changed the input, he totally changed the output. And that's expressed these days in, in, a, in a scientific joke, a serious joke, of course, all the best jokes are serious jokes, this scientific joke of the butterfly effect that the Earth's weather systems can be so sensitive to circumstance that a butterfly stirring the air with its wings in the African jungle today can produce a minute disturbance which will grow and grow and grow until it produces a storm over New York City in about three weeks' time. 
I can say to you with absolute confidence that detailed long-term weather forecasting is never going to work. We shall never know about all those African butterflies. <clears throat> and these sensitive effects are extraordinarily sensitive. Uh, and let me give you another example. Take the air in this room. Now, the air in this room consists of a lot of molecules that are sort of buzzing around fairly fast and colliding with each other. They're not, of course, little billiard balls, but actually the way they behave at the sort of temperature we have here, the way they behave when they collide is like a billiard ball. And they, because they're, they're moving pretty fast and they're fairly close together, they have a lot of collisions. In fact, in a time much less than a millionth of a second, each of the molecules in this room will have had uh, about 50 collisions. Now, you ask the following question. How accurately do I have to know how a particular molecule is moving now to be able to predict less than a millionth of a second later whether it will be moving towards the back wall or away from the back wall? Now, a billiard ball collision, on the face of it, is a determined collision. If I know exactly how uh, two entities like that collide, I can calculate, Newton did this actually, I can calculate exactly how they separate. But a very small error in the direction in which they collide will produce a very large error in the direction in which they separate. If any of you by any chance have played snooker or pool, you will remember that uh, a slight error in queuing produces a disaster co disastrous consequence for the resulting shot. Now that's one collision. But our molecules are going to have 50 collisions. And these um, uncertainties, these deviations, mount up. They exponentiate, in fact. And if you put the number in, you find that I will make a serious error in calculating whether my molecule is going to be going that way or that way after a millionth of a second if I have neglected to take into account the influence on that molecule of a single electron, that's the smallest bit of matter, on the other side of the observable universe, that's about as far away as you can get, interacting with the air in this room through the force of gravity, which actually is the weakest of all the forces of nature. So you see, even so simple a question, is it going this way or that way, and so short a time as a millionth of a second, cannot be answered accurately, uh, even for so simple a system, without literally universal knowledge of what's going on. That's a cosmic butterfly uh, with a vengeance in relation to these things. So, the world is full of intrinsic unpredictabilities. And the word intrinsic is important here. It's not that if we tried a little bit harder, we were a bit better calculators or we a bit better measuring things, we'd be able to figure out what was happening. These, uh, these unpredictabilities are intrinsic. They're, they're limitations on human knowledge that we can't get around. Everybody uh, would agree that that's correct. But now, of course, we come to... That's the science, if you like. But now we come to the metaphysics or the philosophical question. What do we make of that? What does that tell us about the, the process of the world? You see, what I've been talking about is unpredictability. And unpredictability is uh, what the learned call an epistemological property. It tells us that we cannot know how these systems are going to behave in the future. We can't know whether that molecule is going to go that way or that way. But epistemology, what we know, is not the same thing as ontology, what is the case. And in fact, there is no ineluctable um, deduction 
from what we know to what is the case. It's the central, it's one of the central problems of philosophy and probably the central problem of the philosophy of science to decide what relation you should have between knowledge, what you think you know, and actuality, what things are really like in themselves. And it, it is actually a philosophical choice to decide uh, what, what the connection should be. And, 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 but if you are a scientist, your natural choice, and it may be a conscious choice or it may be an unconscious choice, your natural choice is to take the philosophical strategy that we call realism. And realism says that what we know is a reliable guide to what is the case. Our knowledge of the world does not mislead us. In fact, if scientists didn't believe that, we wouldn't really bother to do science. And we didn't think we were learning about what the universe is actually like. All that weary labor and frustration and so on would really be pointless. So we believe that we're realists. And if we're actually, if we're religious believers, we're also likely to be a realist because we will believe that the creator who has written the book of nature, if you like, has not written a lie is not misleading us uh, by the way we uh, uh, know, uh, believe we know the world to be. My wife, um, uh, a while ago, for one of my birthdays, um, gave me a sweatshirt, which has upon it a very stirring motto. It's beautiful words that she had heard me speak on occasions like this several times. And what my sweatshirt says is, epistemology models ontology. What we know is a reliable guide to what is the case. You get some pretty funny looks if you walk down the street wearing, <laughs> wearing, wearing that, but that's, the, that's the, the attitude. And if we take that realist position, which I'm going to take this evening, then we will be able to say not only that the world is full of unpredictabilities, but we will also say that those unpredictabilities are signs of an openness in physical process that the world is really, it, it, it is really open to its future. We don't know that future because there is more that determines the future than simply the sort of causes that conventional science uh, is able to describe. And that's, that's, the, that's the metaphysical or philosophical position I'm going to nail my colors to the mast uh, to in relation to this evening. That's the point of view I'm going to take. And it's quite a natural point of view to take, um, for example, let me just take the example of quantum theory. When Heisenberg discovered, you know, there's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in quantum theory. It says if you know where an electron is, you don't know what it's doing. If you know what it's doing, you don't know where it is. Uh, there's a limit to what you can know about the world. Now, that's an epistemological property. And when Heisenberg discovered it by figuring out what you could measure, and he figured out you couldn't measure both where things were and how they were moving uh, with equal accuracy. But very, very soon, uh, Heisenberg himself and virtually all physicists were treating that as an ontological property. It wasn't just a principle of ignorance. It was a principle of intrinsic indeterminacy in the world. So you see how natural it is for a scientist to take the realist move from what we know to what is actually the case. So I'm going to do that. And if I do that, um, what does that mean? It means that the future will, in some sense, be open, but not open necessarily, or in my view, not open at all, in an irrational sense. I'm not saying that the future is some sort of cosmic lottery. When I talk about the openness of the future, what I mean by that is that there are causal principles that bring about the, 
the future. I'm not giving up the, the principle of sufficient reason, that there is reason for why things are the way they are. But those causes that bring about the future are not exhausted, not exclusively described by the conventional scientific description of the exchange of energy between colliding constituents. That's the, the, the causal picture of the world on which modern uh, physics is based, is, is a constituent exchange of energy. What I'm saying is that these intrinsic unpredictabilities suggest that though that is undoubtedly part of the story, it is not the whole story. The world is sufficiently open for there to be other causal principles to be at work, which together with the constituent picture bring about the actual realized state of the future. And what would those principles look like? Well, we don't, we're still exploring these issues, but we can make, I think, some pretty intelligent conjectures, some sensible guesses about what, what those principles might be like. First of all, they will be holistic in their character. These exquisitely, I'm going to concentrate particularly on chaos theory because that's what's relevant to everyday experience. The, the, these sensitive systems can never be isolated from their environment. The slightest nudge from the environment will change their future behavior. So they are systems that have to be considered not in simple bits and pieces terms, constituent terms, but they have to be considered in terms of uh, also of the totality of what's going on. They have to be considered holistically as well as in constituent terms. And when we do that, we think about the, the, the future of the, uh, the future behavior of a, of a chaotic system. Actually, chaos theory was a very badly chosen uh, word. I mean, we're stuck with it, but because what's interesting about the future of chaotic systems is that they're certainly unpredictable, and they certainly look fairly random, but they're not totally haphazard. Chaotic systems combine both order and disorder. We don't know how they're going to behave, but they, they, they don't just have every random possibility ahead of them. There is a structure to the way in which they behave. And that structure specifies different patterns in which the energy might flow through the system. The energy of the system is not going to be changed, uh, but the way in which the patterns that energy forms uh, uh, will be depend upon all these imperceptible nudges that the system is getting from its environment, all these butterflies flapping their wings. So not only will these new causal principles be uh, holistic in their character, describing relating to the totality of what's going on, but they also, I suggest, will be pattern-forming. They will correspond to particular patterns of dynamical behavior. They will be described by something that we might call, and we don't, again, entirely know exactly how to define this, but caused by something that we might call information. It's not energy. It's not pushes and pulls and shoves of a, of a sort of big... Uh, disturbing kind. It's the formation of pattern. And that theme of the formation of pattern is a theme that is an emerging theme in a whole number of branches of science as science enters the 21st century and begins to develop. Again, we're at the early stages of this. At the moment, these, th these systems are, are, are studied um, in um, bit by bit. They're um, they're um, we, they're studied as examples, and very strange and unexpected behaviours are exemplified time and time again 
but there is no, as yet, no deep underlying theory uh, which explains what's going on. There must be such a theory, and my hope is that, an expectation that I shan't live to see it, is that by the end of the 21st century, uh, information, the specification of a dynamical pattern, will be as fundamental and important a concept in science as energy uncertain, certainly is today and has been for the last 150 years. For example, if you study systems that are um, far from equilibrium, uh, which are being maintained in a, they're called dissipative systems, they're being maintained in a particular state because there's a flow of energy into the system and a flow of energy out, uh, the, and with the flow of energy out, the system exports entropy, it, it exports disorder into the environment. These systems can spontaneously generate and maintain very elaborate uh, structured forms of dynamical behavior. They just, it sort of seems to come for free. The study of these dissipative systems is a very interesting uh, aspect of what's going on. And there's an analogy to that in terms of the behavior of logical systems. Let me just briefly describe to you a system that has been studied by a chap called Stuart Kaufman. He has a, a, it's a logical system. He, he sets it up on a computer, and it's a Boolean net of connectivity too, but it's, it's too late in the day to use that sort of language. So we'll think about it in, in terms of hardware. Suppose you have a great array of electric light bulbs, and um, each of these bulbs can either be on or off. And there are rules. The system develops in steps, and there are rules that just specify these steps. Each bulb in the array is correlated with two other bulbs elsewhere in the array. What these two are doing now will determine what this one does at the next step of the development of the system. The rules are simple, but I don't need to go into the details. So you set the system up, and you, with a sort of random pattern of illumination, some bulbs are on, some bulbs are off, and then you just let it develop according to these rules. Now, I don't know what you think would happen. I think, I would expect nothing would really interesting would happen. We just sort of twinkle away haphazardly for as long as you let it do it. But that doesn't turn out to be right. Very, very soon, the system settles down into an extraordinarily highly ordered form of behavior. It spontaneously generates, in a way we don't understand deeply, it spontaneously generates a, a highly ordered pattern of behavior for itself, so to speak. If there are 10,000 light bulbs in the array, there are 2 to the 10,000, which is about 10 to the 3,000, which is a 1 followed by 3,000 zeros. And you don't have to be a great mathematician to recognize that's a very, very, very large number. Possible, in principle, possible states of illumination. But very soon, that system, instead of having 10 to the 3,000 different states, focuses down to cycling through just 100 different patterns of illumination. It's the most astonishing spontaneous generation of order in the system. I am bowled over every time I describe that, that, describe that fact. And when we come to understand these things, it does seem to me clear that, that information, the specification of pattern, is going to be a, a very important aspect of what's going on. So what have I said so far? What I've said so far is this. I've said that, that the world is more open to its future than you might have thought, that there are causes that bring about the future. Uh, which are different from um, the ones conventionally described by science. That these causes relate to patterns of behavior and they relate to things behaving in their totalities as rather, as, rather than simply exchanges between the bits and pieces. Now that begins in a small way. It, it hasn't got there yet, but it's a step in the right direction, it seems to me, to, to science be able to begin to describe 
a world of which we can conceive ourselves as being inhabitants. Because we have the experience of agency. I can decide to raise my arm. Now, when I do that, there's a bits and pieces account of it. There are currents that flow in the nerves, the muscles contract and so on. But that's only part of the story. I choose to raise my arm. That's an action of me, of me as a whole person. And if you make my arm jump up by giving me a little electric shock, I say, you did that. We have the experience of patterned, holistic behavior, behaving as persons to execute the patterns of our intentions. And though I don't, suggest, I don't for a minute suggest that science has cracked how that happens, at least it's beginning to look in a direction that's co- compatible with it. We know that we act in the world. We know that as, as persons, as agents, we play our part in determining the future. And if the world is open to our action in that sort of way, then surely there is no reason to suppose that it is not open also to the input of information from its, its creator, which will be God's providential action within the unfolding of history. So I think that it is, that it is entirely consistent with what we actually know, and indeed encouraged by what we uh, are hoping we are going to, uh, to be able to understand and know, to believe that the world is so sufficiently open to its future that not only can human agents act within it, but God also can act providentially within the unfolding history of the world. And if that's right, then, of course, a scientist can pray. God can do particular things in particular circumstances. And incidentally, if God can't do particular things in particular circumstances, the sort of stretched human person language that we use about God would have been a mistake. Because persons, that's exactly what persons do. Persons are different. God is more like father than like force. Not because God's an old man in the sky with a white beard, but because God does particular things in particular circumstances. Well, something like the first force of gravity just is there all the time, doesn't adjust in any way to the details of what's going on. Now, if that's right, there are a number of consequences that flow from it. One is a scientist can pray because God can act. Secondly, however, God's action in the world will be partly veiled, partly hidden within the cloudy unpredictabilities of what's going on in the world. Because we don't, the world is not absolutely clear, absolutely deterministic, we can't, in fact, disentangle things, pull them apart and say, nature did that, human agency did the other thing, God, providential action, did the third thing. We can't tear things apart. God's action will always be hidden within the cloudy unpredictabilities of the process of the world. We may be able to discern God's activity by faith, but it won't be demonstrable by experiment. Somebody sits on the banks of the Reed Sea and sees a a crowd of fleeing slaves coming along, and lo and behold, just as they get to the the, the watery marshes, a wind uh, springs up and drives the water back, and the fleeing slaves get across, and then the wind drops and... um, Their pursuers are caught and stuck in the mud and, in fact, are drowned. Now, nothing can force that spectator to see more than a happy accident. But nothing can deny those fleeing Israelites to believe that they have experienced God's um, action to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. There will be a sort of ambiguity there. Things may be discernible by faith, but they will not be demonstrable by experiment. Also... 
while there are lots of clouds in the world, there are also a fair number of clocks. There is a regular process in the world, seed, time, and harvest, night and day, things of that nature. And that regularity, that clockwork aspect of the world, is, 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 is theologically, religiously, understood as, 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 as active signs of the creator's faithfulness. And if that's the case, then there are some things that God will not do, that God will not be, uh, will, um, will, will uh, not change the, the sequence of the seasons just uh, to suit human convenience. You know, Origen, a great early, early Christian thinker, uh, once he lived in Alexandria, which is a pretty hot spot to live, and he, he said it is not sensible to pray for the cool of spring in the heat of summer. Tempting, though, no doubt it was to do that in Alexandria. So there are some things that it is not sensible to pray, pray for because there are divinely ordained clocks as well as divinely manipulated clouds at work in the world. So, I'm getting near to the end of what I want to say, and the most interesting bit of the evening is, is the conversation will be coming up on the horizon. So I've tried to, to show you uh, that I believe that we can take very seriously what science tells us about the process of the world. Look at it very carefully, take into account not only what science has to say, but our experience of human agency, and if you like, our, our uh, um, religious intuitions of God's providential action and hearing prayer. And they fit together in a way that is mutually consistent with each other. That we're, they're, 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 the science has not shown that the world is so tightly organized, that the grain of nature is so tightly drawn, that either human beings or God cannot act within the, and what is in fact the open grain of nature. So, if that's the case, we can pray in a petitionary way. But there remains, nevertheless, a puzzle. And it's this, why do we have to pray? I mean, after all, God knows everything. God is good. So why doesn't God just get on with it? I mean, why do we have to ask God for things? I mean, it's quite a serious question, it seems to me. Uh, and, and, um, and I think that, um, I, I think we need to answer it. And I would answer it along, along two lines, really. Uh, one is this. I've been trying to describe a, a, a picture of the unfolding of history in which human agents have some limited but real power to bring about changes in the future. I mean, we can act in the world. And I've tried also to describe the unfolding of history in such a way that I believe that God interacts with that unfolding history. So we have a, a little power to bring about the, the future. God has retained a significant providential power to bring about the future. Now, what we're doing when we pray, and this is actually quite an ancient and conventional thought, what we're doing when we pray is, if you like, offering our little room for maneuver to be taken by God and used in the most appropriate and powerful way in conjunction with God's uh, retained providential uh, power for maneuver in bringing about the future. In other words, what we're trying to do in prayer is we're trying to align our will with the divine will. And I believe that when, the, when human and divine wills are aligned with each other, then things become possible in the future that would not be possible when human will and divine will are at cross purposes with each other. Uh, a, a little scientific parable I like to use at this point 
is, is, is to draw an analogy with laser light. We all know that laser light is extremely powerful. Um, what makes laser light have these uh, unusual properties that just ordinary light doesn't possess? Well, the answer is that laser light is what the physicists call coherence. Um, light, for purposes of thinking about this, is made up of waves. And in coherent light, the waves are all in step. All the crests come together and add up. All the troughs come together and add down to the maximum effect. If you have incoherent light, then, of course, waves can be out of step and a crest and a trough can cancel each other out. So what makes laser light powerful is the coherence of its components. And what makes prayer powerful is, I think, the coherence between divine will, the laser-like coherence between divine will and human will in, in seeking to bring about the future. And if that picture is correct, it has a couple of consequences that we need to take into account. One is this. Prayer and action are two sides of the same coin. And in particular, prayer is not a substitute for action. If people say, well, why doesn't God do something about something? Then they have to ask themselves, have I done something about it as well? If I have an elderly neighbor who perhaps is rather tiresomely repetitious in telling stories about the old days, the same old stories every time come, come out. I do not discharge my Christian duty to that neighbor by simply staying at home and praying for him and her. I have at least to be prepared from time to time to go around and hear those, those, um, those stories yet again. So prayer and action are two sides of the same coin. And then there's another thing that follows in this picture of what, what's going on in prayer, and that is it explains to us why, um, why corporate prayer is a good thing. I think we all have an intuition. It's a good idea to have a lot of people praying for the same thing, and churches, of course, encourage that. I mean, again, you ask yourself, what's going on? Uh, is, is it because we're, the more people are making a fuss uh, um, and God really gets so tired he's got to do something about it? Or, or, or more people just drawing God's attention to something God really hadn't noticed? Or more people proposing a really rather clever plan to how to solve the problems of the world that God might not have thought of without a little help? <laughs> I've, certainly heard people, I've certainly heard people praying along those, those lines. Obviously, none of those things are true. So why do you have a lot of people praying? Because there are more fists beating on the heavenly draw to attract the divine attention? No. There are more wills to be aligned with the divine will. And incidentally, I believe that there is an interconnectivity in the world, that when our wills and God's will are aligned, that has consequences not just for us, but for others who are drawn into that, that sort of nexus of the world. So that's one thing we're doing when we pray, I think. But there's another thing that I think we're doing when we pray, and I learned this from an Oxford philosopher, I have to say, called John Lucas. Um, it's a generous admission from a Cambridge physicist that he learned something of Oxford philosopher. But... Fair is fair. Uh, in a book called Freedom and Grace, uh, he, Lucas has a, a chapter that discusses uh, prayer. And he says, what we're, one of the things we're doing when we pray is we're saying what it is we really want. We are admitting, confessing to our heart's desire. And I find that very powerful and very challenging. It makes prayer very serious. You shouldn't ask for trivial things. Your heart's desire should not be a trivial thing. 
And I think it's right. I think it's, it's right. And, and if, you know, just think about that story in, in the Gospels about when there's a blind man comes to Jesus. You remember this, this Bartimaeus, he's in the crowd, he's blind. He hears the disturbance, says, what's going on? Somebody says, well, Jesus of Nazareth is going, on, going along the road. And he jumps up and says, Jesus, help me. Jesus calls him out of the crowd and he stands before Jesus. And Jesus says to him, what do you want? For heaven's sake, he's a blind man. It's obvious what he wants. But he has to say, Lord, that I may receive my sight before, in fact, he's healed. In prayer, we have to commit ourselves to what it is we really want. I do find that very helpful, as I say, very challenging. But there's one final thing I want to say before we have our conversation. And, and it's this. When we talk about prayer, we talk about God's action in the world and our privilege of, in our small ways, collaborating with that action. But we also have to recognize uh, that there is the irreducible mystery of individual human destiny. Prayer is not magic. It is not filling in a blank check handed to us by a celestial Father Christmas. And the way prayer works out, the way prayers are answered, will inevitably involve the mystery of individual human destiny. I had a friend who was diagnosed quite out of the blue and, uh, as, as having an inoperable cancer. And he was given six months to live. And it was a, just a terrific shock, of course, to him and to his wife and, 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 and to his friends. And um, he was a Christian man. His wife was a Christian woman. They had wise Christian friends. And they were advised that, uh, they, that my friend's wife should pray with him each day, laying her hands upon him and seeking God's healing for my friend. And they did that faithfully. And, of course, many of us were praying, praying for John as well. Now, as it happens, my friend died almost exactly six months to the day from the time he'd received the diagnosis from his physician. And when he died, my friend's wife asked herself what had been going on. And I think only she could answer that question. No priest or someone could just breeze in from the outside and say, let me explain it to you. And she, was, she thought about that, and she was generous enough to share her thoughts with us. And she felt this. My friend lived in a community where he'd had a fair amount of opposition and a somewhat difficult life, uh, it would be fair to say. But the people in that community, when they saw the, Chris, the courage and Christian hope with which he faced his death, saw things in my friend that they'd been unable to see before and were deeply impressed by that. And there was a real reconciliation between my friend and those that opposed him in the community. Now, there was a second thing. He had a condition that could very easily have led uh, to a distressful death. But in fact, he died peacefully at home with his wife by the bedside. And my friend's wife concluded and shared with us that she felt that their prayers for healing, which after all are prayers for wholeness, had been answered in that way. Obviously not in the way that they'd been hoping for. I mean, clearly they were hoping there would have been some degree of physical remission. But I think that's, that is the mystery of the individual destiny. Prayers for healing may be answered through, through recovery of some sort or remission of some sort, or they may be answered by people being enabled to accept the imminent destiny of death. 
And nobody can say, I think, beforehand what form it's going to take, and only those deeply involved can say whether, whatever the experience turned out to be, whether that was indeed an experience of healing. So, can a scientist pray? Well, yes. Not only can a scientist pray, but of course many of us do, because there are a lot of religious believers in, in the scientific world. And that's what I think about it. And I'd be interested now to know what you think about these things, and so perhaps we can have some sort of conversation. So it's over to you. Sir John, I wonder if you would be willing to lead us in what you might consider to be an appropriate petitionary prayer for peace. I certainly, I certainly would, yes. Thank you for that, that, that invitation. Lord, we ask you to look on the suffering of the world, on those places where relentless human action and exploitation is bringing suffering on innocent people. We pray for those who have responsibilities for these situations, those who seek to bring aid, those who command military forces and have to decide on forms of action, on politicians who are having to face very serious uh, decisions. We pray for all ourselves that helpless as we often feel in relation to these, these uh, great world issues, that you will guide us and help us to see if there are ways in which we can, we can do that. We all have responsibilities within the societies and states of which we are members. So we pray for peace. We pray for the end of oppression and injustice. We pray particularly for people caught up in war. We pray for the people of Iraq, of Afghanistan, of Chechnya, of various parts of Africa, particularly in Darfur. Lord, we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us at the hands of the authorities. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. I'm just curious, are you from Missouri? <laughs> I don't get that. That's beyond my, beyond my cultural range. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Uh, Sir Paul Kinghorn, it's an honor to hear you speak. Thank you for coming. Um, I'd like your comment on um, actually two quotes that I brought. Yeah. Um, you haven't addressed this subject directly tonight, but no. it, um, it has very much to do with the character of the God that we pray to. Right. Um, there are two brief quotes. Um, the first is from Dr. Jacques Menard, um, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Nobel Prize winning biologist. Yeah. He's from the interview, The Secret of Life. Right. The quote reads, uh, why would God have chosen this extremely complex and difficult mechanism? Natural selection is the blindest and most cruel way of evolving new species. The struggle for life and elimination of the weakest is a horrible process against, against which our whole modern ethics revolts. I'm surprised that a Christian would defend the idea that this, that is evolution and natural selection, is the process which God more or less set up. And the second quote uh, is along similar lines. Um, these are both by atheists, of course. Um, G. Richard Bozarth, 
um, from the meaning of evolution from the American atheist. And it reads, Christianity is fought, still fights, and will fight science to the desperate end over evolution. Because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve in the original sin, and in the rubble you'll find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Take, take away the meaning of his death. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what the evolution means, then Christianity is nothing. Um, I'm not an atheist, but I think those are very interesting uh, comments. Well, thank you. I, undoubtedly, the, the problem of evil and suffering in the world is the most difficult uh, problem. I think it's the, most, the problem that holds more people back from religious belief than any other and troubles those of us who are believers more than any other. Um, I think that, I think that, that uh, as far as evolutionary prices are concerned, I, I'd say two things, I think. One is, of course, there is, 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 is a lot of wastage and indeed apparent suffering. We have to be a little bit careful. I, I'm struggling a little bit to know how to say this without sounding too insensitive. But we have to be a little bit careful not to commit the pathetic fallacy of attributing human understanding to animal, animal life. I mean, a lot of human suffering comes from an anticipation. I think animals, even the highest animals, live in the near present. And that the gazelle, of course, knows that death is near when the leopard springs, uh, but um, doesn't have that, 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 that brooding on it that, that, the way that humans do. So I, 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 that's a, just a little caveat to be, to be careful about the red in tooth and claw thing. And of course, it's also true that, that uh, evolutionary process and, and selective process depends also upon symbiosis and cooperation as well as upon competition. I mean, you have to be careful not to describe it accurately. When Darwin's Great Theory was, was published in 1859, um, some Christians immediately had the insight to welcome uh, what he had to say. And, and Charles Kingsley said that Darwin had shown us that God, instead of making, bringing into being a ready-made creation at the snap of the divine fingers, had made a creation endowed with fruitfulness, which was to be explored by creatures, and creatures were allowed to make themselves. And that was a greater gift than a ready-made world. And I think there's an insight there that's worth, worth thinking about. But, of course, it's a gift that has a necessary cost. There is a shadow side, not only the, rag, uh, the raggedness and blind alleys of evolutionary process. The same, the same biochemical processes of genetic mutation, which have been the engine driving the development of life, the extraordinary rich development of life, of course, also, when they take place in somatic cells rather than germ cells, uh, produce cancer, malignancy. It's, uh, the fact that there's cancer in the world is not gratuitous in the sense that um, it, it, um, it, 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 it's sort of oversight or callousness on God's part. It's the necessary cost of a world in which creatures make themselves. Now, we can argue whether it's a cost worth paying. That's another thing. Well, you see, we tend to think if we'd been in charge of creation, we'd have done it better. We'd have all the nice things and thrown away all the nasty things. But the more we understand the process of the world, the way it works, we can see that they're inextricably entangled. So that's one thing I'd want to say. I don't think it removes the difficulties, but I think it does somewhat qualify them. It means that the suffering of the world is not totally gratuitous. The other thing I want to say is exactly to go to, to the death of Christ because it's, it seems to me that the deep and uniquely Christian insight is that 
The Christian God is not just a benevolent spectator looking down compassionately, compassionately on the suffering of the world, but in the cross of Christ we see God living a human life, dying a painful, shameful human death, caught up in the travail of creation. Truly a fellow sufferer who understands, who knows suffering not from the outside, but from the inside. That's an extraordinarily deep and profound Christian thing. And it, 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 it's one of the things that, as a Christian God is the crucified God in other words. And, and it, it's, it's an insight that makes, makes it possible for me to be, to be a Christian believer. But there is still a mystery, and I, I don't want to suggest that there's, in two or three minutes I can dispose of those problems. I'd like, please, to, to return to Heisenberg's uncertainty yes, principle. Yeah, yeah. Um, viewed from our limited environment, um, it seems to violate God's omniscience. Now, I accept that he exists in a larger number of dimensions, and maybe from his larger number of dimensions, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle no longer exists. Do you know, has anyone explored this? And if not, what is your opinion? Well, I, my opinion is this, that I think God knows things as they really are. God, God's divine knowledge is, is, is totally adequate knowledge. And therefore, if Heisenberg's uncertainty principle represents a genuine indeterminacy in the world, then God knows that that indeterminacy and knows the limits of that. And that is part of God's, of God's knowledge of God's creation and part of an expression of God's will for, for God's creation. So I don't think, I don't, I, I'm not inclined to think that God somehow gets around that. I don't know, I, I, if the uncertainty principle is an intrinsic property of created matter, then I think God will know that way. Now let me say something that I'm sure you won't all, all, all agree with. I've been trying to describe a world uh, which is a world of true becoming, in which the future is not just um, uh, some, some sort of relatively trivial consequence of the present, but the future is made as we go along. It's not up there waiting for us to arrive. We play our part and God's providence plays its part in the making of the future. It's a world of true becoming. Now, I go back to what I said before. If God knows things as they really are, then I think that God knows a world of true becoming in its becomingness. God knows the world, the history of the world in its succession. Not just that it's successive, but knows it in its succession. In other words, I believe that when God brought into being a world of true temporality and true becoming, God accepted uh, an engagement with time. God, of course, is not enthralled to time in the way that we are. There is a, an un unchanging eternal pole to God, but there is also a temporal pole. God is called, has accepted involvement with history. We see that in the Bible, in God's interaction with the history of Israel. Very expressed in extraordinary, bold, anthropomorphic terms in the Hebrew Bible, which talks about God changing God's mind, you know. Hezekiah, you're going to die. <gasps> Don't want to die, Lord. Okay, 15 more years of life. I mean, that... <laughs> And of course, above all, of course, in, 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 in the in, in incarnation, a birth, uh, um, a birth under Augustus and a death under Tiberius. Um, so I, I think that I think myself that God accepts an involvement as, as a general. I mean, self limits God's relationship uh, to accept an engagement with time, and that means that even God does not know the unformed future. It's not a defect in God because the future is not yet there to be known. But I believe, of course, and of course God sees the forces that are shaping the future much, much more clearly than we do. 
But I don't, I mean, God, for example, could see it and see through, speak through Jeremiah to the kings of Judah and say that the king of Babylon was going to take Jerusalem and that the Pharaoh wasn't going to come and rescue them. You see how history is moving and said that warning, of course, we didn't accept it. But I don't think God saw beforehand which soldier would put which torch to which part of the temple to burn it down. Now, that's very controversial, and it might entirely be wrong, but, uh, but that's, that's, what I, that's, what I, that's what I believe. I saw your quote uh, the other day in the Sunday Telegraph. Oh, really? In, yeah. in response to uh, the book on the God gene. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, it was clear that you thought it was a dubious idea, but they didn't uh, let you, of course, expand on, on why exactly. And I was wondering if you could say something further about that whole notion that people often put forward that um, <clears throat> if uh, belief or non-belief isn't a question of your upbringing, uh, it's a question of your biology. Well, I think, I, I think that, that human nature is pretty complicated and, and is not to be reduced to the consequence of a single principle, whatever kind it may, it may be. Of course, we are shaped by, by our genetic inheritance um, to a significant degree. I mean, the fact that I have not achieved international success as a basketball player is certainly connected uh, with, with, with my, 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 my genome. Um, but also... Also... The, we are also shaped by our experience. I mean, the structure of the brain. I mean, it was, of course, a great surprise for the Human Genome Project that we only apparently have about 30, 30 to 35,000 genes rather than 100,000 people thought. So much more is epigenetically determined, that's to say experientially formed, than perhaps people have thought. And certainly the wiring of the brain is something that, uh, that uh, is shaped by our experience and continues to be shaped by our experience. You probably know that London cabbies who have a very, very precise knowledge of, uh, of uh, the city, uh, something I think New York cabbies might sometimes uh, try and pick up, um, <laughs> have an enlarged part of the brain that's connected with, with, with uh, spatial memory. And that, that's grown, presumably, because they've used it a lot and had to use it a lot. So I think we're formed by our experience. And we're also, moreover, not only formed by our experience, so to speak, that beats upon us, but we're also formed by our decisions. So I think, we're, I think we're, we're, what we are is, is, is shaped in all sorts, of, all sorts of, of different ways. And that's why God genes or, or um, homosexual dream, genes or kleptomaniac genes uh, are ex- extremely uh, suspect uh, notions, it seems to me. Thank you so much. That was fascinating. Um, your, your comments about the light bulb system, could you comment or possibly interpret how might an atheist explain that occurrence of a system coming from kind of an entropy type of state? Well, uh, you see, the the, the second law of thermodynamics says that in in isolated systems, they get more disorderly. Entropy increases. Just think about your desk, and and you'll you'll get, 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 get the message. And the reason that, reason, reason that happens is that, is that um, there are many, many more ways of being disorderly than being orderly. So in the long run, disorder wins. That's for isolated systems. But if you have systems that are um, in contact with their environment, um, dissipative systems, I spoke briefly about them and what I had to say, then they can export disorder out into the environment and create uh, pools of high order 
And that's how I think, that's how order forms in the world. That's how the stars and galaxies formed. That's how, uh, how uh, life came to be. And, that's, and we are all, all of us are dissipative systems, and we keep going for our 70, 80 years or whatever it is, uh, precisely by that sort of way, eating and drinking. Every time I breathe out carbon dioxide, I'm breathing out entropy into the system. So I don't think there's scientific problems about how order is generated in, in the world, in, in, in the physical and biological world, provided you, you, you remember that, uh, that, uh, uh, that it's an interactive system that you're talking about. Thank you. Um, I would like you to expand a little bit upon um, praying for the will of God yeah. versus, um, you know, praying for uh, your own will. Yeah. And the reason I ask is because I think of if God gives us free will, yeah. uh, he obviously has that free will as well and yeah. therefore can change his mind. And if we look towards the, uh, you know, Christ praying in Gethsemane for take this cup not my will, but yep. thy will be done. There's an expectation from him saying that maybe he might change his mind. If you could expand upon that. Well, yes, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Gethsemane. I think Gethsemane is one of the most profound and moving and significant incidents in, in the gospel story. Of course, it's, 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 it's the incarnate Christ in Gethsemane, the, the, the son of God who is living the life of a first century Palestinian, living a truly human life. We've got to remember, got to remember that. And, and Jesus' prayer is exactly saying what he wants, but also accepting uh, his father's destiny for him. And, of course, in a trivial sense, uh, I mean, the cup, cup isn't taken away from him. I mean, it, he he has, has to drink it and drinks it on Calvary. So that's, uh, that's going on there. Um, God has given us free will. I, I don't know. And, and God, in some sense, has free will. Uh, in another sense... That's, that's a, not, not quite so clear. Uh, by that I mean this. When we, say, when we say that God's almighty, for example, we don't simply mean God could do absolutely anything. God can't do evil. Can't, God can't be a capricious celestial conjurer. Saying that God is almighty is to say that God can do whatever it is that is in accordance with God's will. And God's will is in accordance with God's nature. And it is so much in accordance with God's nature, there is a some sense in which God's free will is totally focused on, on, on that purpose. Now, we have, we have free will, but a very important insight of Christian anthropology, which is different uh, from secular anthropology, particularly <clears throat> from the anthropology of our, 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 our days, uh, our time, is that human fulfillment doesn't lie in the untrammeled exercise of our will. Doing it my way is not the essence of Christian fulfillment. We are not autonomous beings, independent beings. We are heteronomous beings. And our true fulfillment lies in our seeking and aligning our wills with, with God's will. That's not, that's not a slavish serfdom. It's embracing the, ser the service, which is perfect freedom, to use a phrase from the Anglican prayer book. And that, that's a very, a very unpopular notion in our, in our society, which is very atomistic and very autonomously oriented. And it's also, it, it's also um, an insight that is um, 
not compatible with all the different uh, religious and spiritual traditions of the world. You know, in Buddhism, if I understand Buddhism rightly, the Buddhist notion of fulfillment is the, is the um, negation of the will. The negation of desire. That's the way to, to flee from evil, is to, is, to, is to abolish desire. But I think the Christian uh, concept of, 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 of fulfillment and this is very much expressed by Augustine, for example, is, is, is right desire. And right desire, of course, is the desire for God and the desire to do God's will. But there's a, there's a difference, a very, very significant difference between those two spiritual traditions in that respect. Sir John, I may have missed a step in your argument, but it seemed to me that you were positing the existence of uh, free human will when you made that illustration of raising your arm. And um, I'm wondering how you would argue to the scientific materialist who would say, well, the brain is just a collocation of atoms, and so anything that comes out of the brain is going to be determined by the interaction of those atoms. It isn't any more free than any other, you know, interaction of billiard balls in the room. And so there really is no such thing as free will, and you can't reason from there to the existence of a free divine will. Well, I'd say two things to that. I'd say, first of all, uh, I'm very wary of highly abstract arguments that deny very direct human experience. Uh, They can can be wrong. Of course, we we can make mistakes about things. But uh, I'd be pretty wary about that. The The second thing I'd want to say is this. That scientifically, we do not know very well what is the causal structure of the world. I've already talked about unpredictability and suggested that it's an attractive, not an inevitable, but it's an attractive and certainly metaphysically possible uh, uh, position, uh, which I embrace, of course, to interpret them in terms of, of openness in the sense of, of, uh, of uh, allowing other causal principles to be at work in the world. Also, we don't, we ha- our knowledge of, 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 of the physical causal structure of the world is, is, is very patchy. I mean, we know about quantum theory. We know about everyday physics, classical physics. In particular, we know about chaos theory. But we cannot put those two theories together consistently. There is no consistent joining of chaos theory to quantum theory. The reason is that quantum theory has a scale. It has a size to it, uh, given by Planck's constant. And, and chaos theory is fractal in its character, which means it's the same all the way down. It doesn't have a scale to it. It's scale-free. And how you put those two theories together? Well, you can't. So there's some, something has to give somewhere. So we, we, don't, we don't understand the causal structure of the world very well. I don't rejoice in that. I, I hope we all get to understand it better. So I'm particularly wary of people who tell me that, uh, yes, we do know the causal structure of the world and we know that it's all, it's all clockwork. I mean, that is, uh, that is certainly not true. It might be clockwork, but we certainly don't know that it's not that it's clockwork. And I think we have good reasons for being extremely doubtful, both experiential and also also uh, analytical reasons for thinking that, that, that that's not the case. So I'm 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 not very impressed with that argument. Really, to be perfectly honest. Sir John, first I'd like to thank you uh, very much. Um, for one thing, we're talking largely, we're using the term world here. I'd like to change that for a moment and talk universe, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, you made some excellent points before, which I happen to agree with. Uh, 
that the one thing that we see as scientists uh, is orderliness. It is the hallmark of the entire universe. Mm -hmm. And when we got to chaos theory and the deeper we go every year, the more we see that even what we thought was totally random, without rationale before, there is a pattern under it. And as you so beautifully put, you know, you come down to 100 out of one with 3,000 zeros. That's orderliness asserting itself throughout the universe. Mm. Yep. And I, my question basically is this. It seems to me that if you look at Earth now, not the universe, Earth, yeah. where mankind holds reign, that most of the disorderliness, whether we're talking about war, whether we're talking about impact on the environment or whatever, comes from man's inability to love fellow man unconditionally. That if you wiped out that one single factor, wouldn't we have a far more orderly societal system throughout this world? And it strikes me that the comment that Jesus made, the one major mandate that he happened to make, was that we should love each other unconditionally. So my question to you is, do you see any reason why that would be inconsistent to think that the human species and the human condition on planet Earth, like everything else in the universe, should not have been set up by whatever created the original universe to be orderly, and that somebody's waiting for us to get in line with somebody else's feelings. God, if you choose. And the other thing I would like to add to that before you answer is that Many people have questioned, how could God communicate? Mm -hmm. Well, we know today, again, in science, that communication is done through various energy forms, waves, if you will. We've been looking to outer space for years with different kinds of wave technology. We have to cut to the question. Yes. We now know that gamma rays, which we didn't expect, come in constantly, but in a random pattern. Could that not be the way he communicates? Your feelings on that, please. Well, I think the, think the, the story about the human impact on, on the terrestrial environment is a, is a mixed story. Um, we certainly, uh, certainly are, are creating um, all sorts of problems. We know about global warming and, and pollution and things of, of that nature. And that arises uh, very often out of, out of a certain ruthlessness uh, an acquisitiveness, uncontrolled acquisitiveness of human beings. Of course, we also bring some order into the world as well. Uh, we... we um, um, uh, are able to, uh, if we have the will, we don't always have the will, but we're able to deal with things like famines and so on in a way that wouldn't be possible without, without human uh, agricultural and, and transport inventions. There's also a lot of, lot of destruction in the world that isn't, isn't human of char character. I mean, what did for the dinosaurs wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, anything to do with humankind, of course. So it is a mixed, a mixed uh, uh, picture. I... As for gamma rays, I don't think that's the way God works. I think God works more subtly than that. And um, I, I mean, I think that the astrophysicists have to think um, a bit more ingeniously about gamma ray sources. I mean, we do know some of them come presumably from things like black hole collapses and things of that nature. So I, I, I would be leery about that, I think. <laughs> 